Mr. Brendan McGuire. Dr. Marshall, do you mind if I slide him out of the way? Yeah. <laughs> 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 kind of tough to speak in the shadow of Dr. Marshall over the shoulder. Good. So, just to catch up, our kind of Ground zero starting point for today's lecture, just so that we have one, is going to be the year 1000. This is where we're going to start today, just to give us a basic sense of the development of the Reconquista in the years between the year 1000 and 1492. So we're going to take a look at the situation that prevailed in the Iberian Peninsula in the year 1000, and we're going to go from there. So, just to take a look at, uh, look at things here, uh, if we were to kind of draw the Iberian Peninsula up here, you know how awesome I am at drawing. <laughs> I should put my data up and just get a job with the Washington Post sketching things and all that. I should draw mean Iberian Peninsula. So there we go, mean Iberian Peninsula. So, um, where, if you wanted to put my boundary here for the year 1000 between Islamic and Christian Spain, where would you put it? Just say when. There we are in the year 1000. Below this line, we have Islamic Spain. Where's the capital? Cordoba. Sorry, Tree. There we go. There's our capital of Islamic Spain. Uh, what is the name of this great Islamic state here that occupies the majority of Iberian Peninsula in the year 1000? No, we're, we're in the age of the Umayyad Caliphate. Right? We're in the age of the Umayyad Caliphate. So just to kind of reflect, refresh ourselves here, when we say Umayyad, what does that mean? It means that these rulers are descended from the dynasty that ruled in Damascus between 661 and 750. Right? This is a dynasty that can trace its roots back to the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad himself. Right? That's what we mean by Umayyad. So we have this great Umayyad dynasty here, which traces itself back to the Middle East, back to the first Islamic century, right? And we're calling it a caliphate. When did the Umayyad kingdom in Spain become a caliphate? 929. <laughs> what is a caliphate? Why is that significant? Right, yeah, the man says it over here. A, a, a caliphate is a government ruled by a man who claims to be Muhammad's successor. Right now, wh what does it mean to be Muhammad's successor? It's not just an Islamic ruler. Is there anyone today who claims to be a caliph? No. No, there's no, no Muslim alive today claims to be the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. In fact, the last caliphate was destroyed in the aftermath of the First World War, as a matter of fact. The, the Ottoman Turks had a little caliphate of their own, which was abolished after the First World War when Turkey became a secular republic. Um, so we haven't had a caliphate in a long time. So you mean they killed someone, too? Sorry? Did they kill someone? Who killed when someone? When they did that? When they did what? When they, they abolished the caliphate? I mean, did somebody die? That what? Lot, lots of people died when Turkey was becoming a republic. <laughs> no, no, no. Was there a caliph? <laughs> there was a caliph, yeah. No, no, the, the, the last caliphs kind of retired. They lived in Egypt for a while, okay. and then that was the end. Um, 
So yeah, we have no more caliphs in the 20th century. But um, the, why am I stressing this point? Because for the Islamic State in Spain to claim to be a caliphate is a sign of flourishing. It's a sign of confidence. It's a sign that this Islamic State has reached its high watermark. Right. This is the absolute pinnacle of Islamic Spain. Here, right around the year 1000, we have a state that's strong enough, prosperous enough, culturally and scientifically advanced enough to call itself a caliphate. In other words, to claim the mantle of leadership in the entire Islamic world. Basically, the Islamic leaders of Spain are saying, look, we have here a state that is strong enough to be the preeminent Islamic state in the entire Islamic world. Now, um, Christian Spain, as you know, at this point is divided up into a few small principalities. In the year 1000, uh, what would go on to become the Kingdom of Navarre was known at the time as the Kingdom of Pamplona. Uh, and then uh, Leon and Castile were still separate kingdoms. And over here you had several different little duchies that would go on to become Andalusia. Aragon, Andalusia. Well, you mentioned Andalusia. What, what is Andalusia? Because right. this name Andalusia, what language is that? But, oh. Catalan. It's Arabic. Oh. That's Arabic. Right. The Islamic name for the Iberian Peninsula was Al-Andalus. And from the Arabic name for the Iberian Peninsula, we get this name in modern Spain today. They still use it, Andalusia. Al-Andalus was, was an Arabic name, and that's where we get this word. So Andalusia is down further south. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, it's very, there's a lasting imprint of Arabic uh, upon Spain today. You even have Arabic names and things like that. It's Gibraltar. Well, Gibraltar is another, that's a good, good one. Um, so, uh, in point of fact, in the year 1000, the Islamic Caliphate is by far the preeminent, most powerful state in the Iberian Peninsula. Now, what are these little Christian states doing for the most part around the year 1000? Well, they're fighting among themselves and they're paying tribute to the caliphate. Right? So the Christian states are much, much weaker by far right, than the Islamic caliphate. None of them is able to particularly kind of emerge and take the mantle of leadership in the Christian community. There's no question of, of any kind of crusade or active reconquista or anything like that going on around the year 1000. Now the game changes dramatically in the year 1031. And the reason for that is this. The Islamic Caliphate of the Umayyads, the Caliphate of Cordoba, as it is often referred to, was um, really kind of a veneer. Right? It was a veneer that covered profound internal division, strife, and disunity. Right? And what happened was, with the deaths of a few powerful caliphs and generals, the most powerful of whom was the general Al-Mansur, who died in 1002, Weaker men emerged and assumed the leadership of the caliphate. These men were utterly incapable of holding it together. And by 1031, the caliphate had completely disintegrated. Right? So by the time we get to 1031, Islamic Spain is no longer a unified state. In fact, Islamic Spain finds itself divided into a checkerboard of tiny little kingdoms. Um, a few of whom are more powerful than others. Right? Now these kingdoms have a name. These kingdoms are called taifas. A taifa is a tiny little territorial state, a petty kingdom or a dukedom in Islamic Spain. Now, the kind of disintegration of the Umayyad Caliphate 
and the replacement of the Umayyad Caliphate with these tiny little taifa kingdoms changes the balance of power. So that after 1031, the small Christian states to the north become more powerful than their Islamic neighbors. Right? And so it's after 1031 that the um, real kind of ac dramatic acquisition of territory by the Christian kingdoms begins in earnest. Now, the, this era of the Taifas is a very colorful and interesting age, this age between 1031 and roughly 1094 or so. This is an age in which a man could carve out a little kingdom for himself if he wanted to. You're all familiar with the figure of El Cid, right? Everyone knows El Cid, right? Now, the problem with El Cid is that the, the El Cid of history lived during the age of the Taifas. Right, the El Cid of history is not the El Cid of cinema, or even the El Cid of poetry. Right? In fact, the El Cid of poetry is depicted as exhibiting the values of roughly a century after he actually lived. Right? Now, why is that important? It's important because the El Cid of history, living in this age of the Typhos, was far from being a, um, a real deeply convicted Christian crusader who was committed to driving the Islamic presence out of the Iberian Peninsula. El Cid was uh, simply the best mercenary around. That's what he was. And his historical career really um, shed some light for us on what was going on in the Iberian Peninsula in the period of the Typhus. El Cid, for example, was he was basically a, a contractor of sorts, a military contractor with the King of Castile. <clears throat> when he angered the King of Castile and was kicked out of Castile, he became a contracting mercenary with an Islamic emir, right? The emir of the Taifa Kingdom of Saragossa. And he fought for his Islamic emir friend. And at the end of the day, El Cid, by the time the guy dies, he's carved out a little petty kingdom for himself, which is neither really Christian nor really Islamic. El Cid, he was Christian enough to restore the churches right, when he carved out his little kingdom uh, in Valencia, but he was not deeply and profoundly Christian. He had fought for the Muslims, he had Muslim friends, he allowed Islamic worship and things like that. So El Cid is, in history, a man who, although he falls short of perhaps the ideals that a later age would have for what a crusading Christian knight should be, El Cid is a man who shows us what's going on in the age of the Typhus. In the age of the Typhus, you have the entire peninsula divided into petty kingdoms, both Christian and Islamic, which are at war with one another. Frequently, in this age, you'll see alliances of Christian Kingdom A with Islamic Kingdom A, fighting against Christian Kingdom B and Islamic Kingdom B. Right? And then tomorrow they switch. And, you know, so it's a very, very interesting period. Um, a few things happen, though, that are important to the progress of the Christian reconquest of the peninsula. One is that the direction in which tribute is flowing gets reversed. Right? Remember, prior to 1031, the Christian kingdoms are paying tribute to the caliphate because the caliphate is by far the strongest state in the Iberian <laughs> After 231, the Islamic taifas, which are weaker than their Christian neighbors, are paying tribute in that direction. Right? So the incipient Christian kingdoms of Leon, Castile, Aragon, are receiving tribute from their Islamic neighbors. This enriches them, and it enhances their ability to wage war. Not only that, uh, another real interesting fact about the Taifa period is that these Islamic rulers uh, had other ways of competing with one another that were kind of aside from military competition. 
and that is that they competed with one another culturally. Right? The Islamic emirs of the tiny Taifa kingdoms would consider it uh, a point of honor, a point of prestige, to patronize the best poets, the best philosophers, the best writers of Arabic poetry, that kind of thing. And uh, you get a lot of fabulous culture that develops in Islamic Spain in this period. And it's kind of funny because our instinct is always to associate cultural flowering with political stability and strength. And yet throughout history, one finds that cultural flowering often accompanies periods of political weakness and division, decline, and even disaster. Right? I mean, Italy during the Renaissance is a perfect example of this. Italy during the Renaissance is a plaything of the greater powers. It's divided into petty principalities that are always at war with one another, never been weaker in its entire history. And yet during the Renaissance, you have an amazing flowering of culture. So there is a flowering of culture, which includes a flowering in philosophy that takes place in Islamic Spain during the period of the Typhus. And this would have a profound impact on the West in subsequent centuries. Now, be that as it may, uh, the situation is ripe for a man of energy, a man of vision, to emerge on the Christian side and to really push the envelope aggressively here. And it turns out in the 11th century that one such man does in fact emerge, and that is the King of Castile, Alfonso VI. Alfonso VI was the king of both Castile and Leon. And in fact, he had become king of Leon in 1065 and become king of Castile in 1072 upon the death of his brother Sancho. And Alfonso VI is one of these other figures of the 11th century for whom it's difficult to disentangle legend from reality. Right? Alfonso VI was the subject of countless heroic poems in both the Christian and Islamic traditions. He's been the subject of movies. He's been the subject of kind of radical embellishment during the Romantic period. And so when you're trying to get down to it, the historical reality of Alfonso VI can be very difficult to decipher. But the stories are, are better than the reality. So I'll give you some of the stories. Um, there, there was a famous story that he was, um, in fact, uh, while he was at war with his brother, uh, and he was running and trying to hide from his brother's death squads, he simply escaped into Islamic territory, and he was picked up by an Islamic emir named al-Mahmoun. And al-Mahmoun became his friend, al-Mahmoun harbored him, hid him from his brother, protected him, and that sort of thing. And as a result, the Spanish Christian poets always referred to al-Mahmoun as un caballero a un moro. Right? He was a knight, even though he was a Muslim. And so, <laughs> he was a knight, a nobleman, did noble things. Uh, there's a famous story also that later in life, Alfonso VI was playing chess with another Islamic emir. He's playing chess with the emir of Seville. And in the middle of the chess game, this, this, this emir, whose name was Ibn Amar, uh, looked up and he said, you know what, Alfonso, we haven't agreed upon a wager for our chess game. And Alfonso VI said, well, you know what, Ibn Amar, I, I like your chess set. The board is made out of ivory, the chessmen are made out of gold. Uh, this, this is really kind of cool. So how about if I win, I get to keep the chess set? And Ibn Amar said, oh, no problem. I could have another one made tomorrow, I don't care. Um, and then he said, all right, well, Ibn Amar, what if you win, what do you want? And Ibn Amar said, well, how about, how about we'll wait till the end of the game, and then I'll make up my mind. <laughs> 
So being the man of honor that he was, Alfonso VI said, well, okay, it's not like you're going to win anyway, but if you win, name your price. So they played the game, and Ibn Amar won. Now, Alfonso VI said, okay, buddy, what's it going to be? And Ibn Amar said, well, you know what? How about you don't conquer Seville? Alfonso said, okay. And throughout his lifetime of conquests, he never touched Seville. Mm. Now, that comes from an Islamic source, by the way. Alfonso VI, just as a side note, he's also the guy depicted in the uh, the Charlton Heston movie of El Cid. He's the king who was forced to take the oath, the public oath, that he didn't kill his brother and all of that. That comes from the um, Spanish poetic tradition, that whole anecdote, and it's probably not historical either. So you have this, this figure of Alfonso VI, who's a figure of legend, and a figure of myth. And in point of fact, his historical achievements really reveal to us why this, this is exactly the type of guy who would be embellished in legend and myth. Alfonso VI, um, what was really most important about his reign was something that no legend and no myth could really top, and that was the Christian recovery of Toledo. Just to give us a sense of where we're at here in the period of the Typhus, the city of, the city of Toledo is located roughly right around there. Toledo was an ancient Christian city. It had been the Visigothic capital of Spain. And Alfonso VI took advantage of the weakness of the Taifa kingdoms to forge diplomatic alliances with some of the Taifas and wage war against others of the Taifas, right, with the ultimate objective of recovering Toledo, in which he was successful in 1085. Now, Alfonso VI's recovery of Toledo pushes the boundary between Christian and Islamic Spain effectively down to about halfway. And Toledo, um, we see how significant this was for the Christians because the first item on the agenda after recovering Toledo was the restoration of the diocese. And Alfonso VI immediately turned his attention to that task, restoring the presence of the bishop, putting bells back into the churches, repopulating the monasteries and the convents and that sort of thing. So if here's the situation in 1085 where the Christians are making steady progress, Alfonso VI as king of Castile and Leon has emerged as the champion of the Christian side, things have progressed to a point where it looks like the taifas might just get rolled off into the sea. What are the taifas going to do? They realize that their weakness, their lack of unity, is their Achilles heel. So some would suggest maybe they'll try to unite. Well, uniting with one another would be a complex process if they tried to do it themselves. And so what the Taifa kingdoms in 1085, after the loss of Toledo kind of wakes them up to their danger, what they actually do is something even more radical, and that is they look for outside help. They look elsewhere in the Islamic world they invite other Muslim princes to come in and forcibly unite them. Now, to whom do they turn? Have you ever heard of the Almoravids? <coughs> Who are the Almoravids? Well, they were Moors. They were African Muslims. Uh, the Almoravids are a fascinating people. The name Almoravid is also Arabic. It seems to be derived from Almurabitun, which is a participle 
from the Arabic word ribat. Someone who is ribat is someone who is ready for jihad. That's what the word means, to be prepared for battle. And so al-murabitun, al-murabit, simply means those who are ready for jihad. Now, who are these guys? Well, it's really fascinating because the origin of the Almoravids actually lies outside the boundaries of the Mediterranean world. The Almoravids were originally an African tribe from south of the Sahara, down by the banks of the Senegal River, deep in the heart of sub-Saharan Africa. This tribe had converted to Islam in the 9th century. right? But they were cut off from the Mediterranean world by the vast, uncharted expanse of the Sahara Desert. You know, the Sahara Desert is as wide as the Atlantic, and in the Middle Ages it was just as trackless as the Atlantic was. So the Almoravids originally were very much on their own down there. That started to change for religious reasons. Now, in the year 1040, there was a tribal chief of the Almoravids down in sub-Saharan Africa, whose name was, in Arabic, Yahya ibn Ibrahim. Now this fellow, Yahya, Yahya ibn Ibrahim, um, Abraham, right, Yahya, the son of Abraham, in the year 1040, decided to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. When he went to Mecca, he realized, wow, you know, we Africans don't practice Islam the same way they do here in Mecca. That's a problem. Wow, I'm going around Mecca, I'm seeing all these things that they do, I'm seeing all the things that they don't do. You know, this is really different from the way we do it back in Africa. Uh, and so what Yahya does is he returns from his pilgrimage and decides to begin a reformation of the practice of Islam in Africa to bring it into line with the orthodox Islam of Mecca. And he brings with him a preacher, a kind of a wandering mendicant by the name of Abdallah ibn Yasin. Abdallah means the slave of God, the slave of Allah. And so Abdallah ibn Yasin comes in, and he preaches a very interesting Islamic gospel. He preaches a gospel that's characterized, first of all, by a penitential practice of self-flagellation. The man who is a true Muslim is the man who can mortify his flesh by whipping himself with the kind of a metal cord thing. Now, this practice of self-flagellation was ordered towards what end? Military discipline. In other words, Yahya and Abdallah begin a process of not only reforming the religious practices of African Muslims in the 11th century, but also establishing standard military discipline for all the tribes. Now, of course, this uh, military discipline gives them the opportunity to really enhance their power. So we find this particular tribe in the middle of the 11th century conquering other sub-Saharan <coughs> African tribes in the area of Ghana, modern-day Nigeria, all along the west coast of Africa. And not only that, but bringing into their sphere of influence the tribes of the Sahara. Right. Now, through contact with the tribes of the Sahara, they hear about the Mediterranean, they hear about the Muslims of the Maghreb and the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And so as the 11th century wears on, we find them expanding their domains further. So that by the time we get to around 1080 or so, the Almoravid tribe rules over an empire that includes sub-Saharan Africa, 
uh, the desert itself and all of its nomads, as well as the western shores of the Mediterranean. Now, this was a powerful, expansionistic, ambitious group of men. And it is to these men that the weak, decaying Taifa kingdoms of Spain turn for help. They turn to the Almoravids and say, look, we're really taking it on the chin from the Christians here in the 11th century. Can you come up and save us? And of course, the answer is yes. A general of the Almoravids, a guy by the name of Yusuf ibn Tashfin, He accepts this invitation and leads an Almoravid army into the Iberian Peninsula in the year 1086. Having arrived in the the Iberian Peninsula, he marches forth to meet the armies of Alfonso VI, and he does a disastrous battle known to the Spaniards as Sagrajas. It's known to the Arabs as the Battle of Azalaka, that is to say, the Battle of the Slippery Ground. Now, why do the Arabs call it the Battle of the Slippery Ground? Because so much blood was spilled on the battlefield that you couldn't walk on it without slipping. In this battle, more than half of Alfonso VI's armies were destroyed. Where was it? Geographically. Azalaka was, it was kind of down here somewhere, it was south of Toledo. Um, and what this effectively does is it doesn't result in the loss of any territory for the Christian kingdoms. What it does do is it, estab- it kind of stops the Christian advance, right? And it establishes in a firm sort of way this border here south of Toledo, right? Now, the Almoravids do more than just fight Christians. They also fight the rebellious Taifas. And by the time you get to around 1094 or so, there are no more Taifas. The Taifas have been completely absorbed, amalgamated, and assimilated into the Almoravid Empire. So when you get to the 1090s or so, it's kind of interesting. The Almoravid Empire spans 3,000 miles north to south, from the middle of Spain all the way down deep into sub-Saharan Africa. So you have, once again, another massive, powerful Islamic state, of which Spain is but a part, right? But the territorial balance in Spain is not altered at all. The Christians are still able to maintain their hold on all of this territory in the northern half of the peninsula. So, um, you know, this Almoravid Empire, once it gets its initial push and they win the great victory at the Battle of Sagrajas, they never again win a crushing victory against the Christians. You know, what seems to happen is the Almoravid Empire starts very strong and then weakens gradually as the 11th century turns into the 12th. But there's an even more important development going on as the 11th century turns into the 12th, and that is the penetration of crusading ideology into Christian Spain. Okay. Now, as you all know, when, when was the first crusade properly so-called? 1095 to 1099. 10, yeah, 1095 to 1099. All right. And so it's, it's in the 1090s that the popes of the Gregorian reform, particularly Urban II, are able to enunciate a vision of crusading. And now what this vision is, is a vision of waging war in defense of Christendom right, with religious benefits and religious blessings as the reward for the Christian knight. 
And so in point of fact, this whole concept of crusading is a new one. It's a fusion of previous concepts, concepts of pilgrimage, concepts of indulgence, right? concepts of Christendom as an entity. Right? And it really takes on a life of its own in the 11th and 12th centuries. Now, very famously, in 1095, one Pope Urban II first issued an indulgence for men to go on crusade to the East. He specifically um, forbade Spaniards from taking advantage of this indulgence. He told Spaniards, you're not allowed to go to the East because your fight against Islam is at home. Right? And they said, well, then give us an indulgence. And he said, sure. Right? So you find the papacy beginning right around the year 1100 issuing indulgences for warfare against Muslims in Spain. This makes Spain a legitimate theater for crusading in the minds of canonists, in the minds of popes, and in the minds of Christian knights throughout the West. Right? Now that's going to change the game dramatically. Right? And so the Almoravid Empire in its later years is going to find itself oppressed by not just um, Christian kings fighting for their own territories, but the crusading energy of all of Christendom begins to be channeled in that direction. And the result is, by the time you get to the 1120s, the Almoravid Empire is falling apart. Uh, the Almoravids themselves don't seem to have been as concerned about Spain as they were about Africa. Right? So by the time you get to the 1120s, you have new taifas emerging, new petty little Muslim city-states that are declaring their independence from the wider Almoravid Empire, and thus making themselves ripe for the picking. Right? And so the Reconquista is going rather well. Now this, this period of disintegration of the Almoravids in the early 12th century and their replacement with weak typhos, it kind of reaches a climax in 1147 or so. Because it's in 1147 that the great city of Lisbon is conquered by Christian armies. Now I think we mentioned briefly last time the story of the conquest of Lisbon, right? Uh, so the story of Conquest of Lisbon is kind of funny. The, um, 1147 is the year in which an indulgence had been issued for what we call the Second Crusade. Right? So armies were departing from all over Western Europe to go to the Far East. I'm oh, sorry, to go to the Far East of the Mediterranean, is what I mean, to crusade against Islam there. Now, what happens is a fleet of English knights had departed from the city of Portsmouth, and they were sailing on their way to Jerusalem, you know, is what they thought, right? Now, the problem in the Middle Ages, if you're trying to sail long distances, is what? Ship weather. Aside from ship, if nothing goes wrong, food, food, water, 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 water is your big problem, right? You need to go into port all the time to get water because they didn't have thousand-ton ships back then. I mean, they barely had hundred-ton ships, right? So you don't have enough water on board your ship for very long voyages, and you also don't have vessels that are really comfortable on the ocean, you know, for long distances. So you stay very close to the coast. You know, you'll sail from Portsmouth to the headlands of France. You'll sail down the Biscay coast. You'll sail around, staying very close to the coast all the time, right? You're not doing great circle routes or anything like that. You need to stay close to the coast for water. So right about the time that the English fleet is coming down this coast by Lisbon, they're running out of water, and it comes to their attention that there's a battle going on. So they stop, and they ask the king of, of Portugal, Alfonso I of Portugal, hey, dude, uh, what's going on? He says, well, I'm trying to capture Lisbon. Do you want to help? <laughs> and they say, sure, what do we get? They say, well, you know, we'll, we'll split up the booty. All right? So the English knights say, sure thing. They, they help the king of Portugal conquer Lisbon. The Muslims are driven out. 
And then, very dramatically, the Crusade fleet sails off, you know, packed to the scuppers with the jewels of Lisbon. And so it's, it's a dramatic moment in the Reconquista. It's another major psychological blow for the Muslim rulers. And so in 1147, what we see is, is kind of a repeat of what had happened in 1086 or so, which is to say that the Muslim rulers of Spain turn elsewhere for help. Now, to whom are they going to turn this time? <laughs> Too far away. A Mameluk. No, 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 not yet. Nope. Too far away. No, the ones to whom they turn are Algeria. It's well, kind of. Yeah, it's another group of African Muslims that they turn to, and it's a group of Muslims who are known as the Almohads. Now, Almohad is another Arabic name. It has a funny kind of meaning. Uh, Al-Muhad means the monotheists. Right. So you ask, aren't all Muslims monotheists? Yeah. So why are these guys called the monotheists? Well, it's because the founder of the Al-Muhad sect in Africa had a very radical understanding of monotheism. In point of fact, um, the, this fellow Ibn Tumar was his name, the first Al-Muhad. And his understanding of monotheism was so intense that he thought God cannot have attributes. You know, Islamic theologians had been very eloquent in elaborating the attributes of God. God's oneness, God's perfection, um, you know, God's divinity, God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, that sort of thing, right? Now, the Almohads and Ibn Tumar were the ones who basically argued, look, if you say that God has attributes, then you're saying that God is not really one. Right? If you have God and then he has attributes too, then you have a multiplicity of things in God. You have a multiplicity of attributes. Right? And so it can't really be said that God has attributes. And Ibn Tumar, was so, he was such a pain in the neck about this that he actually got kicked out of Mecca when he was on pilgrimage there. <laughs> he went to Mecca. He, he was scandalized by certain things. He thought the women weren't modest enough. He thought that you know, people weren't strictly monotheistic enough. And he thought they had too many wives. And he, you know, he, so he's going around commenting on everybody's moral laxity in Mecca, and they just kicked him out. So he came back to Africa preaching this gospel of very, very strict monotheism and very, very strict kind of Islamic moral theology, if you will. And basically, Ibn Tumar was able to start a kind of a religious sect here among the African Muslims, the Berber tribes of the Maghreb, which dominated the other sects, gobbled up the remains of the Almoravid Empire, and established another powerful African Muslim state. Right. So, it's these fellows who get invited into Spain in 1147. And they come in, and their military prowess is far greater than that of their Almoravid predecessors. Not only that, their commitment to Spain is more passionate than that of their Almoravid predecessors. You know, the Almohads actually decided to make the Spanish city of Seville the capital of their entire empire. Right? They ruled Spain and Africa from the Spanish city of Seville. The Almohads were committed to culture, it should be noted. Um, you, you've all heard of the Islamic philosopher Averroes, right? Anyone not heard of Averroes? Okay. <laughs> 
Why do we know Aristotle in the West? Because of Thomas Aquinas, right? We have Aristotle in the West because of Thomas Aquinas. Why did Thomas Aquinas know Aristotle? Thomas Aquinas knew Aristotle because of Averroes, right? Averroes, or Ibn Rushd, as he is called by the Muslims, had written voluminous commentaries on Aristotle in Arabic, which were translated into Latin by the monks of Cluny. Right? And the Almohads were Averroes' patron. Right? So the Almohads were, were fellows passionately committed. They were committed to Spain, they were committed to Islamic philosophy and theology, and they were committed to defending their borders from any kind of incursions from the Christian north. So these Almohads, passionately committed to their cause, find themselves in the late 12th and early 13th centuries confronted with Western Christendom at its most passionate. You know, the absolute height of fervor for the crusading movement in Western Christendom and the absolute height of papal power in Western Christendom comes in this period of the late 12th and early 13th centuries. And so it's beginning to look like the Iberian Peninsula will no longer be big enough for both Islam and Christianity in the later 12th and early 13th centuries. Now, matters really come to a head because the Almohads decide to take the initiative. They get very, very aggressive in the later 12th century, and they're very successful at winning battles against Christian kingdoms. In fact, they drive the frontier a lot further north than it had been previously. Almohad victories in the 12th century culminate in 1195 with the battle that's referred to as the Disaster of Alarcos, at which the Christian casualties numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And so after 1195, it really looks like Islam is going to make uh, a kind of a committed push to recover the rest of the Iberian Peninsula and drive Christianity north of the Pyrenees. The situation is very, very dark for Christianity in the Iberian Peninsula after 1195. Now, um, who becomes Pope in 1198? Most famous pope of the Middle Ages. Innocent III. Innocent III. Right. Exactly. Innocent III is a man about whom one can wax eloquent. We could we have multiple lectures about Innocent III. We have two points for the man in the red shirt. <laughs> Innocent III is a, he's a fascinating individual. He becomes pope at an extraordinarily young age. He becomes pope in his 30s. Right. And he was a canonist, he was a theologian, he was a lawyer, he was a man who really knew his stuff, and he was a man passionately committed to the crusading cause. Innocent III would devote his energies tirelessly to the recovery of Jerusalem, to the advancement of Christian conquests in the Levant, and to the security of Christian Spain. And so Innocent III, immediately upon his election, in 1198, he starts drawing up plans for an alliance of the Christian kings of Spain. Now, just getting the Christians, the Christian kings of Spain to agree with one another is going to be no mean feat. Right? The, the chief kingdoms that we're dealing with here around the year 1200 or so are going to be um, Portugal, um, Leon and Castile, which is kind of one thing, and Aragon, you no longer have Pamplona, 
And so these are going to kind of be the chief kingdoms. Leon and Castile on the one hand, Aragon over here, and Portugal over here. And just kind of getting these kings on the same page is going to be a feat of diplomacy for which Innocent III will merit much praise. But he, is, he does more than that. Not only does he get the Christian kings to stop fighting one another and to unite against the threat posed by the Almohad presence in the Iberian Peninsula, but he gets them to gather an elite force of all the knights of Iberia, the Pyrenees, and southern France. And by the year 1212, this force had gathered, drawn by the offer of an indulgence from the papacy, and they plunged like a knife deep into the heart of Almohad Andalus. They met the Almohads in battle at a place called Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212. Um, it's also known as the, the Pass of Despeña Perros, Right. Felicitously translated into English as the, the pass of the overthrow of the infidel dogs. <laughs> um, so, what happened was the, the Christian army simply sliced down into the heart of Almohad Spain, confronted the assembled forces of the Almohad Emir, and in a dramatic battle, simply destroyed the Almohad army. The casualty ratio, just to give you an idea, was something, according to chroniclers on both sides, it was in the neighborhood of about 100,000 Islamic casualties and 2,000 Christian casualties. Absolutely staggering, the casualty differential there. And you know, there's a famous story that uh, the Emir was in his tent, far behind the battle lines. And his tent, as a last resort, was guarded by a group of very large slaves who were chained together in a ring outside the tent. And famously, the, the Knights of Navarre came up, broke through the chain, and went in and got the emir. And so if you look on the seal of Navarre, today it has that chain being broken. It dates back to the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. After Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212, it becomes apparent to all observers that Islamic Spain is effectively finished. What's left is not much. This begins the complete decline of the Almohads. Within a few years, there's no Almohad empire anywhere anymore, neither in Spain nor in Africa. Uh, it leads to a string of conquests, particularly by the Castilians. Ferdinand III of Castile, later on, was able to take Cordoba, the ancient Islamic capital, in 1236. He took Jaen in 1245, and Seville in 1248. So by the time we get into the middle of the 13th century, the Islamic presence in Spain, politically and militarily, has been shattered. Islamic Spain is reduced to a rump of its former self. Now, this rump has a name, doesn't it? We call it the Kingdom of Granada. Now, the Kingdom of Granada is fascinating. All right? Because what is the Kingdom of Granada, really? It's, it's a tiny little rump state in the far south of Spain. Right? And it's actually a vassal state of the Kingdom of Castile. Uh, the emirs of Granada are vassals of the kings of Castile. So it's not even really a fully independent state. In point of fact, the Islamic rulers of Granada um, used to have to come up and help the kings of Castile suppress Muslim rebels. 
<laughs> this is how severely the balance of power has shifted. So in the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, Islamic Spain, although it still exists in a tiny, kind of reduced sort of way, it's very, very much a shell of what it once was. And uh, the, although the Kingdom of Granada is the site of kind of fascinating goings-on, once again, we see culture flourishing at a time of political decay. If any of you have been to Spain, have you seen the Alhambra? Yes. Alhambra? That was built by the kings of Granada. Right? It was built at a time when Islamic Spain, had, politically and militarily speaking, was nothing. Right. And it was a time of some of their greatest cultural achievements. The, uh, the emirs of Granada also tended to assassinate one another, which makes the political history kind of interesting. It's like a, a kind of ongoing soap opera. Uh, and they're all named Muhammad. So you have Muhammad I, Muhammad II, Muhammad III. I, I think Muhammad II was the guy. He was found floating in his swimming pool, face down. Uh, he had been killed by Muhammad III. And then, they, they flipped Muhammad II's body over and there were no eyes in the eyes of so These guys really knew how to dish it out to one another. Right? But any attempt to strike back at Christian Spain was completely out of the question in this period. Now, the final kind of snuffing out of Islamic Spain occurs much later on in the 1490s, in the time of Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Aragon. Um, Isabella seems to have been motivated by her deep religious convictions and a vision of the Iberian Peninsula being completely um, rid of a presence of infidels. Right? So she, she basically said to Boabdil, the king of Granada, look, buddy, you're my vassal, right? but you're a Muslim, and I don't like having a Muslim vassal. And so it, was, it wasn't really a, a military matter to get rid of Boabdil. They did have a siege of Granada. They did fight battles. But at the end of it all, Boabdil, whose son was actually living at Isabella's court. I mean, so what's he going to do? But anyway, Boabdil actually came out, and he greeted Isabella and Ferdinand. And um, you know, they, they greeted each other with love and affection. And he said, all right, here are the keys to Granada. I can't hold out against you anymore. And they said, OK, go to Africa, have fun. We don't care. Right? But we're not going to have Islamic vassals in Spain anymore. Now, according to the Islamic chroniclers, Boabdil, that is Muhammad XII, as he's also known, as he was leaving Granada, he did what, what expelled kings always do, which is he wept over the loss of his kingdom. And so he was being Mr. Poetic figure here, weeping over the loss of his kingdom, just like Heraclius had done or any of these other figures, uh, when his mother walked up. And Boabdil's mother looked at him and said, don't weep like a woman for what you could not defend as a man. <laughs> and that was the end of Islamic Spain. So. <laughs> so by 1492, we have the Iberian Peninsula united under Christian monarchs. It doesn't mean that Spain has really been united yet, or even that Spain has been created in the way that it would be later. You know, Castile and Aragon remain separate kingdoms under Isabella and Ferdinand. It's not until a couple generations later, in the time of Charles V, that you have a, a united Spain. And in the time of Charles V's son, Philip II, Spain and Portugal are even united into a single kingdom for a while, in 1580 or so. Um, but in any event, what we see is that the, um, the Reconquista is not a process that is 
slow and gradual. To use an evolutionary model, we wouldn't call it gradualism. It's more like punctuated equilibrium, if that makes sense. Right? In other words, every so often you have a dramatic event that turns the tables, and what really deserves the credit for the Christian recovery of Spain is the strength of the crusading ideology, crusading spirit, and papal authority in Western Europe around the year 1200. That's what turns the tables. That's what breaks the back of Islamic Spain. So there we have it. That's all. What are our rules? Maximum five, five minutes. Maximum five questions. Whatever we reach first, make sure your question is one breath long and has a question mark on the end. He, he sent us just quickly, if I could have an opinion sure. regarding your comment about the apex of papal authority at this time. Yes. Do you think it would be among historians, but do you think it would be plausible to say that today with the, with the rise of the concept of separation of church and state this enlightenment mentality, and what I perceive as a decline in papal authority in terms of their maybe lack of willingness to get involved in religious and world issues that maybe were the problem we're facing today with the, with the Islamic rise of Islam is related to what is a reflection of this. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, the West having changed into what it changed into, can the West effectively defend itself against Islam the way it used to? No. Without is some that, kind yeah. of... I mean, would it be implausible for a pope to say, folks, we might have to do something like this again because if yes. we persist in this multicultural, politically correct attitude towards the world that we may look at would that be implausible? Yes. Of darkness. Yeah, no, I, I, I would not expect a pope to stand up in our context today and advocate religious war, crusading, reconquista, or anything along those lines, simply because the West, there's so much water under the bridge in terms of Western history. The West, what the West is today is something completely different from what the West was in the Middle Ages. And for that reason, the, everything, the role of the Pope in society, all of that is completely different today. It's all turned around. And, so, and the Popes are conscious of that, and they're aware of that. And so they'll speak, they'll speak to today's time uh, using language that they think people in today's time can understand, right? I mean, if a pope stood up today and advocated religious war or something like that, <laughs> well, even, there wouldn't be any context for it. There wouldn't be any context for it be, because the pope doesn't have the kinds of relationships with rulers and society as a whole right. that he used to. What kind of things? What, so. <laughs> what I got out of this was that every 30 years, everything changed. <laughs> yeah, and so, I'm, you know, 30 years yeah. from now, this whole context could be reversed once again. Mm. Oh, you well, mean today? In, in terms of, it, you mentioned one pope who entered office who had the passion and united people. Right. 30 years from now, if things could change. Things could change. Well, kind of. See, yes and no. Yes and no. I think things militarily on the ground can change dramatically. Right. Um, on the other hand, the whole kind of ethos and mentality of society as a whole doesn't seem to change that rapidly. I mean, you have, the Christianization of the medieval West is something that takes hundreds of years, and then the undoing of that is also something that takes hundreds of years. And so to, 
to kind of redo the Christianization of the West and, and have a kind of a new Christendom is something that I would also expect to take hundreds of years. Um, I, I wouldn't expect it to take 30 years to um, turn on everyone's mentality. If everyone's mentality was in the right place, you know, military developments could change in a matter of years or decades. Um, but a complete kind of um, re-foundation of society, spiritually, intellectually, morally, that kind of thing, um, that's a matter of centuries. And that's something I'm very patient with, I think. Why does it seem to be almost impossible to convert Mohammedans? That's a good question. It's a question to which I don't have an answer, um, except to say that um, the religion is designed in a way that is very, um, it's very particularly clever at preventing its adherents from converting to anything else. Uh, I mean, the fact that, first of all, the religion is linked so closely with civil authority. You know, it's not just a certain kind of religion. It's a religion that prescribes the existence of a certain kind of state. Right? And then within the context of that kind of state, conversion away from Islam is just unthinkable. Now, how have they been able to maintain that consistently over the course of centuries? I really don't know. It's almost a matter of historical accident. It seems, for the most part, Islam has been able to maintain a certain kind of relationship with the authorities of Islamic countries, in which its you know, conversion away from Islam is just not tolerated, even in supposedly secular countries like Turkey, which is a NATO ally and a Western country and all of that. As far as religious matters are concerned, you know, they may externally prohibit the wearing of certain kinds of veils or certain kind of headdress to say, okay, well, we're secular. Um, but if you say, okay, can I go proselytize Turks? The answer is obviously going to be no. So that's, I don't know too much about it, though, other than that. It, it just seems to be the way the religion is. If, if a land that was once Muslim is uh -huh. taken away from them, right. they always look at that as their land forever. Right. Is eventually, Spain is going to be in the crosshairs, I would think. I don't know. I, I, I'm really not too sure that that's the case, to be honest with you. Um, because, I, I mean, we do the same thing in the short term. And even over centuries, I mean, the, the, the popes in the Middle Ages are looking at um, the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa, and they're saying, okay, that used to be Roman, right? It used to be Roman and it used to be Christian. So that's ours, in theory, right? But pragmatically, everyone is... You know, everyone knows what the reality is. Um, and then, of course, as centuries go by, after a while, everyone gets used to it, and Westerners no longer really look at the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa as being ours. I think the same thing kind of happens with Islam. Um, the only Islamic figures today that I'm aware of who will even mention Spain as um, any kind of you know, something that should be Islamic uh, are ones who are educated in the West and have kind of a Western post-enlightenment mindset, like Osama bin Laden. Um, who, Osama bin Laden's whole, his whole conception of the conflict between Islam and the West, and the West is a Western one. His whole concept of what the Crusades were is a Western one, derived from a post-enlightenment, post-Christian education. Um, and so he'll bring up Spain, for example. But I don't think Muslims in most of the Muslim world are really concerned about Spain. Yeah, it doesn't engender much emotion, I don't think. You mentioned uh, Averroes. Yes. Would you give us a little context as to how he fits in in terms of hmm. jumping from Aristotle to Aquinas? Is he right. a step on the way, so to speak, Definitely. or is he, uh, does he provoke a reaction against what he's teaching from Aquinas? Both. 
um, both. You see, here's the thing. Um, Aristotle was basic, most, the vast majority of Aristotelian philosophy was lost in the West after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, there was still a kind of a knowledge of Aristotle that was preserved in the Eastern Mediterranean by uh, the Byzantines and by the Abbasids. Um, the Abbasids tr um, translated Aristotle into Arabic and they began a tradition of commenting on Aristotle, you know, writing voluminous commentaries in Arabic about Aristotle's writings. And the reason you have to do that is because Aristotle, whether in the original or in the translation, is very, very difficult to understand. I mean, I've read Aristotle in Greek. It's very, very, very difficult to figure out what he's trying to say. So you need a kind of a commentary. I mean, I remember when I took my Greek Aristotle course when I was in college, um, my final translations that I was submitting for my final grade, every other word was in brackets because it was words that I was inserting into the text to make it make sense in English. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what the Arabic translators and commentators were doing. They're translating Aristotle into Arabic, and they're kind of, in the course of doing so, they're discoursing on the meaning of it to make it intelligible, because just the words by themselves, it's, it's very hard to puzzle out what he's saying. Um, so these guys, uh, Arabic commentators, of whom there were many, and of whom possibly the greatest were Averroes and Avicenna, um, what they did was um, they made great kind of strides and advances in terms of understanding Aristotle, but they also made certain errors. And so what Aquinas tries to do is to accept their insights and distinguish their insights from their errors. Right. Now, the difficulty that Aristotelian philosophy in general encounters in the West is that people are suspicious of Aristotle because um, when, if you said Aristotle to a Westerner prior to the time of Aquinas, Aristotle to them was equivalent to Averroes, right? And so, I mean, Averroes has all kinds of corners that he backs himself into philosophically that are incompatible with Christianity. And so what Aquinas' task is, what his life's work really is to do, is to, uh, on the one hand, build on Averroes. You know, Aquinas is standing on the shoulders of Averroes just as he is on the shoulders of Augustine. Right? But also, on the other hand, to kind of distinguish Averroes' errors you know, from his genuine insights and to come up with uh, a notion of what Aristotle is really saying. And, and that's what Aquinas' commentaries are all about. And it, what he does is he gives Christianity this great gift, which is not just a knowledge of Aristotle, but a way of interpreting Aristotle that is in conformity with Christianity. And um, this down to this very day, the church uses this kind of language when we talk about the form and the matter of the sacraments and all of that. To a certain extent, we owe that to Averroes. So. If I were a common uh, Muslim, and I lived in Spain, maybe six or seven generations, hmm. and then I was conquered by the uh, Christians, hmm. where would I go? Would I take my furniture with me and run to the next uh, mm -hmm. uh, town? Would they accept me? <laughs> and I kept on running until yeah. I got over to Africa. Would they accept me? Look mm -hmm. what happens now. Yeah, no, it, it would, it, honestly, it would depend. Um, <laughs> there were uh, initially decent numbers of Muslims who would stay in the Christian territories. When well, the they Christian did stay. Territory. Um, hmm. But as time went on, that practice began to be, uh, it began to fall out of use because uh, it just, it didn't work too well. Um, now, for a while, you do have kind of these unstable uh, syntheses of 
Jewish, Muslim, and Christian um, societies living side by side, either under Christian rule or under Islamic rule. You know, large numbers of Christians lived in certain Islamic cities, large numbers of Muslims lived in certain Christian cities. Um, but as time went on, people tended to move to be with their own, it seems, over the course of the centuries, such that, or they tended to convert and simply switch religions. Uh, so that by the time you get to the 1492, let's say, Isabella has this problem where you have some Muslims in her domains who are Muslims. You have some Christians who were Muslims five minutes ago, and it's not really, <laughs> you know, it's not really easy to discern who, how committed the converts are. You know, and then on the other hand, you have people who are descended from Arabic converts from three, four, five generations back whose sincerity you don't want to question because they've, they've been Christian for as long as they can remember. Right? And so it's a difficult situation distinguishing genuine converts from false converts and then also distinguishing converts from people who still want to be Muslim. And what Isabella ends up doing is just saying, okay, anyone who wants to be Muslim can leave. You know? and, um, Did so, you leave? Yes, or they converted. I mean, it, it was a harsh solution, but it's one that uh, it's one that Isabella felt was necessary for religious reasons. So, yeah. so are, are we done? Yep. Okay.